0: Welcome back to the Palview Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Uh, with you once again is Trey Hinkle. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at uh, Palview Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon. The weather's been beautiful this uh, week, and um, the fires that are just to our south um, have not really clouded up the skies too much. We've been able to actually go outside the last couple of weeks uh, for an outdoor service, On Sunday morning, and and that's been kind of a neat thing, um, bringing two of our services together so that we uh, don't uh, get hurt by the lower attendance. You know, uh, it's it's kind of nice to keep our attendance up during the uh, the August hot August days, if you will, uh, the time that a lot of people go out on vacation. Anyways, we're we're continuing through our. A series in the Gospel of Luke, and and actually this is kind of a mini-series within that series, and it's a series on a lot of the parables that uh, Luke records that Jesus told. And uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at what some people thought were three different parables, but they really are just one full parable. But before we get into the parable, I want to talk about that old good news, bad news scenario. I ran across the good news and bad news for preachers this last week, where the good news was you baptized seven people today in the river. The bad news is you lost two of them due to the swift current. The bad news is the women's ministry voted to send you a get well card. The bad news is that the vote passed 31 to 30. Good news, the elder board accepted your job description just the way you wrote it. Bad news, They were so inspired by it, they also formed a search committee to find somebody capable of filling that position. The good news is Mrs. Jones is wild about your sermons. The bad news is that Mrs. Jones is also wild about the gong show, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The good news is that church attendance rose dramatically the last three weeks, and the bad news is, well, that was while you were on vacation. The good news is the youth in your church have come to your house for a surprise visit. The bad news, it's in the middle of the night, and they're armed with toilet paper and shaving cream to decorate. Now, it's always nice to get good news, and not the kind that then is followed up by bad news. The good news, which, by the way, that's what gospel means. Gospel just means good news. The good news of the Bible actually comes after the bad news of, of understanding your position in rebellion against God. We we all stand as sinners Falling short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat, um, dead in our transgressions, spiritually dead. But when we understand what God then does for us, Paul, we're still his enemies, still hostile towards him and his ways. Knowing that he let his son die to take the penalty of our sin, boy, that makes the good news then, knowing that you were his enemy, it makes the good news really, truly good news. Now, by the time we get to this parable in Luke chapter 15, Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem, we're told in the Bible, and and that basically meant he knew that his ministry was coming to an end, and he's now on his way to Jerusalem, and he's only got a few months to live. Uh, By saying he set his face towards Jerusalem, Luke is showing us how determined Jesus is to fulfill God's purpose, right? Right and as we've noted in our own lives and ministry here at Calvary Christian Church when we set our face to accomplish God's will that's when the enemy uh, Satan the devil begins to ramp up his efforts to derail us in trying to do God's will see Satan senses something is up here in Jesus's ministry and so his influence on, on, on those who have made themselves enemies of Jesus that that influence increases, and so we see more and more of these heated confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders of the people, right, as of Luke chapter fifteen. And one of the main issues at heart of those confrontations uh, here, in especially here in chapter fifteen, was how are we supposed to treat or deal with those who are unrighteous? You know, you look out throughout the society, and you see him there—the prostitutes. The tax collectors who have basically been turncoats, um, working for the enemy, the occupying force of Rome. You have zealots who are just murderers and and trying to uh, stir up dissension. You have all sorts of sinners. In, in other words, Jesus is good news was not accepted by the religious standard-bearers of the day as good news because they saw those sinners differently than Jesus saw them. And they began to oppose Jesus' good news that was intended for all of these sinners. And we come to probably the most illuminating passage of the Gospels for us to see the beauty of the good news here in chapter 15. In fact, one commentator put it this way. There is no chapter in the New Testament so well-known as chapter 15 of Luke, and so dearly loved, right? It has been called the gospel in the gospel, as if it contained the very essence, the very core of the good news that Jesus came to bring to us. Now, as we read, I want you to know that though most of our Bibles divide Luke 15 into three separate parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. By the way, prodigal doesn't mean lost. (laughs) It actually means extravagantly wasteful, but we'll get to that later. Extravagant, uh, extra, goes beyond, you know, And so in his spending, he was prodigal. But it's the parable of the lost son. But as you look at the chapter, it's clear that actually these are not three separate parables at all. These are actually just one parable, broken down into three parts. So today, as you're listening to this uh, podcast, we, I, I want to hit all three parts because they all really point to the one and the same message. Okay, So now we'll read the parable in those three sections, and we'll make some general comments as we go along, and then we'll bring it all together to see what Jesus is trying to get at, right? So here we go, uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home and then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, (coughs) excuse me, I tell you that, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. All right. Now, Jesus begins this parable by talking about one of his favorite um, illustrations. The imagery of shepherds and sheep. Scripture is replete with imagery of shepherds and sheep. Psalm 23 That was written by King David. David had been a shepherd before he became king. Psalm 23 is probably the best-known psalm in the entire Bible. David realizes the loving care that he gave his sheep was just like the loving care that he was receiving from God. So David begins his famous psalm with the words, The Lord is my shepherd. And then he lists all these things that the shepherd does makes him lie down in green pastures and leads him beside still waters and restores his soul and walks with him through the valley of the shadow of death and prepares a table of food for him and anoints his head with soothing oil, fills his cup with joy, and gives them a sure promise of dwelling with the shepherd forever. So we love Psalm 23. God's people have loved Psalm 23 throughout history. The shepherd from Psalm 23 becomes part of Israel's working definition of God. The prophets of Israel would picture God as a good shepherd. For example, Isaiah emphasizes God's loving care for even the smallest of sheep. In Isaiah 40, 11, he says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them close to his heart. As the chief shepherd, God entrusts the work of shepherding then to under shepherds. That's essentially what pastors and elders are are today for the church. However, the under shepherds of God's people back in the Bible times, and even today, they're not always the best at shepherding. And so uh, back in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God accuses the under shepherds of negligence. Jeremiah chapter 23 says, you have scattered my flock. You have driven them away and you have not attended to them. And then in Ezekiel 32, he says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought for. My sheep were scattered, he says, all over the face of the earth, with no one to search for them. So, If that was where Jeremiah and Ezekiel were, now we fast forward to Jesus' day. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they understood perfectly what their responsibility was as under-shepherds for Israel. But they didn't realize how horrible of a job they were doing at it. Jesus had come to those who were the outcasts, those who were far from God, those who needed to know the grace and the forgiveness that is found in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. But we see in Luke 15, 1 and 2, the chief complaint that the religious leaders had was that Jesus was wasting his time with sinners. They were annoyed with Jesus. And it was due to the fact that he was doing what they had been called to do. They had been called to be the ones to go out and find the scattered lost sheep. And here Jesus was doing that job way better than they could ever do. Now, in speaking of sheep, Jesus' audience would have understood the dilemma of losing a sheep. They would have known that the shepherd uh, who was watching over the sheep was typically very connected to the family, intimately connected to the family who owned the sheep. The shepherd, now, we're not talking about the hired hand who'd come in and help the shepherd, but the actual chief shepherd would feel, naturally would feel responsible for the sheep to take care of the sheep for the family. And so in this scenario, in this first part of the parable, one of the family's assets has gone missing. And of course, the shepherd then says, I have to go find it. I have to go. I have to go. I'm responsible for these sheep. I've got to go and look for it until I find it. Those who don't understand the economy of, of that day, they would wonder how responsible it is to leave 99 sheep there in the open country to go find just one. I mean, some people might think, man, uh, come on, that's just a 1% loss. Let it go. Let it go. You've got 99 other ones to protect. But consider this. If the shepherd didn't have that concern for each and every one of those individual sheep, if he was not concerned with each and every individual sheep, what comfort would that be? to any of the other ninety-nine. See, it's ultimately his willingness to go after the one that gives true security to the rest of the flock. Because if the one is sacrificed in the name of the larger good, then each individual of the group is insecure, because they also could be sacrificed for the good of the larger group, right? They don't have value unless they're a part of the entire flock. And so, if lost, maybe he would be left to die. See, when the shepherd pays such a high price to find the one, he is offering the profoundest security for the many. Now, the next part of the parable will seem very similar. Verse 8 through 10, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And then when she does find it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, you can see how the theme of the lost sheep is now played out here in this lost silver coin. Just like the sheep would have been very valuable to their society, obviously the coin is very valuable to this woman. Keep that in mind. The value of each individual coin. When you hit the temptation to just say, well, what's the big deal? You still have nine coins. You still have 99 sheep. But again, with that attitude, it's easy to forget that each one has value. And that's the point. So you spend time finding the the lost the the one that is lost that has value and you rejoice do you see that there's rejoicing in both instances you rejoice when you found it because finally it's back where it belongs what a relief and finally we get to the last part of, of this parable verses 11 through 32 a longer section and again this is typically its own sermon but really these are all part of the same parable So verse 11 says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Bring the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Oh, so many lessons to learn from that portion of the parable. The role of the father who waits every day on the porch waiting for his son to return, the extremes to which the son goes to try to do it on his own before coming to his senses and finally returning to his father's house, being willing to even be a slave and not be a son anymore, the fact that a good Jewish boy would end up living with and feeding pigs, which would have been unclean and forbidden for Jews. Each one of those is a great lesson, a great sermon in and of itself, right? But ultimately, the point of this parable centers around, again, the joy, the rejoicing, the celebration, the joy of the father when the lost son comes to his senses and comes back home. And, in contrast, the resentment of the older brother at the celebration and at the joy. In other words, grace had been given to one who did not deserve it by his actions. But because of his relationship to the father a father who was filled with grace the man was welcomed home back into the fold no matter what had happened grace was freely given when there was repentance now let's go back to the first couple verses did you catch who this threefold parable was directed at let's look at verses 1 and 2 again now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him No, this is not directed at them. Because it goes on to say, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, church, isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? For sinners to want to come and hear what Jesus has to say? For sinners to be welcomed into the presence of Jesus For Jesus to actually share a meal with them. Isn't that the point? Now, Jesus' message had definitely been serious. He says, if you want to follow me, you count the cost, right? Because it's not going to be a bed of roses. There's got to be life change. But in the end, eternal life is going to be worth whatever you give up for the kingdom's sake. So it's not like Jesus is just giving these guys an, an easy life, But these sinners had the spiritual insight to realize the cost-to-benefit ratio was something that they would be foolish to refuse. But just to be offered hope through the grace of God had, had to have been exciting, because nobody else in the religious community was willing to offer that to them. Now, I wonder how many people would have a similar response to the core message of grace if it wasn't bogged down with so many extra steps that many will meaning Christians, add to the message. I wonder how many people would actually want to hang out with Jesus if they were accepted into Jesus' presence, for who they were, where they were, no matter what. Church, don't add to the message of grace. The only thing that Scripture tells us that is required, and is seen in the story of the lost son, is a willingness to return. That's called repentance, coming to one's senses, realizing you have a need for a Savior, understanding the rock bottom that your choices have led you to hit, and having a willingness to get up and come home. Now, perhaps people would be open to that kind of conversation with Christ followers rather than get hit over the head with a Bible, showing them everything they're doing wrong. See, that's what the sinners of Jesus' time were experiencing with these religious leaders, they were being condemned. They they weren't given a second or a third or a fourth chance. So really, there's nothing new about how religious people sometimes treat sinners. And, and this is why I believe that the older brother is included in this part of the parable, because the older brother is representing the religious elite who have grumbled at these people being welcomed into Jesus's presence. They think highly of their own adherence to the law, and they condemn everybody else. Like the brother, they think that they're entitled to exclusive love of the father because they've never strayed, at least not publicly, right? And like the brother, they, they're they very much against treating the wayward brother with any kind of grace because he blew it. He doesn't deserve to be part of the family anymore. Now, in taking a step back to compare these three parts of the parable—the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son—we see very clearly that each has its unique story as to why whatever was lost was lost. See, the sheep was lost because it went astray. Probably didn't know any better. Probably was not paying attention to the voice of its shepherd. There there wasn't any selfish intention there. Just the sheep wasn't listening. Uh just kind of wandered off, you might say. Now, the coin was actually lost, not because of the coin's negligence, but uh, because of the owner's negligence. Somebody wasn't paying attention to the coin. Life got busy. Stuff was going on in the house, most likely. And as it happened, it it tends to happen, things get lost. Somebody wasn't watching over it very well. And it got lost. And then the lost son, well... That was an intentional choice, wasn't it? That that wasn't just he was not paying attention or that he got lost in the shuffle. No, he made a conscious decision to go his own way and to spend what he thought his value was in a prodigious way. Prodigious means extravagant without regard to the cost. Living large. And that's, folks, what prodigal means. Extreme and extravagant. Prodigal does not mean lost. Prodigal means extreme and extravagant. And this man, when he took the inheritance, he went out and spent it on large living, extreme living, extravagant living. That's what made him the prodigal. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, how often are we okay with extending grace to certain people? Because, well... They're being lost. That wasn't really their fault. They weren't paying attention. It it, it wasn't real blatant of them being lost. I'm okay with bringing them into the fold. But when it comes to extending grace to those who knew better, but who made an intentional choice to go down a wrong path, well, (laughs) sometimes we think, well, that's on them. So they don't feel too much sympathy about those kinds of people. That's exactly what the religious leaders were doing here. That's exactly how they would have seen the sinners who were gathering to hear Jesus. Hey, it was your choice to become a tax collector, right? Uh, To to betray your people. It was your choice to sell your body. It was your choice to walk away from the laws of God. You made your bed. Now you've got to lay down in it. But for Jesus, you know, he, he didn't care how you got lost. Even if it was by willful rebellion, the point of grace what's seen in each one of these three parts of the parable is this. There is something that is lost, and that something is sought after. And once it's found, there is ultimate rejoicing because it has been found. Immediately after the loss was discovered, there a search began. The shepherd would leave the 99 in the open field to search for the lost sheep. The woman would Turn her house upside down, searching for the coin. And though the father would actually never leave his home to go physically search for his son, every day it seems like he was waiting and watching. Because he was able to see his son coming home from a far distance and ran, ran to go get him. And happily, with every one of these searches, the lost item is recovered. And there is now rejoicing over the recovery of what was lost. And that rejoicing doesn't just happen on earth. It also happens in the heavenly realm. Verse 7, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 24, this my son was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and found, and they began to celebrate. So what's the point? Jesus is nailing the Pharisees to the wall because of their cruddy attitude. They had this inflexible hostility towards sinners. And Jesus said, listen, I want to show you the heart of God, because God is a prodigal father. That's why I think that this parable should be called the parable of the prodigal father, the extravagant father, the father who went to extremes to bring his son back. The woman who went to extremes to find her lost coin. The shepherd who went to extremes to bring the lost sheep back. The prodigal father. The prodigal woman. The prodigal shepherd. Folks, this parable is about prodigal love. Extreme, extravagant love. And if that's the way God views sinners in this world, how much more should we? who have already experienced that prodigal love, be willing to be agents of redemption and share that with other people. The older son didn't get it. He didn't want to share the father's house and the father's love with the lost brother. The religious leaders didn't get it. They grumbled at Jesus' acceptance, his seeming acceptance of the sin. But please understand, Jesus didn't accept their sin. He called them out on their sin, and he changed them. He accepted them. He was accepting. He wasn't accepting of the lifestyle, but he was accepting of the person. And the love that they were shown was powerful enough to cause them to say, I am loved like this. I will love in return, and I will make a different choice. Zacchaeus, Matthew, Mary Magdalene, Peter, Paul, the list goes on and on and on of those that we find in the Bible who were accepted for the sinners that they were, and who, once confronted by that prodigal love of God, had their hearts changed, their rebellious spirit broken, and the whole course of their life transformed. Now, sometime after Jesus told this parable, he said, "'The Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost.'" So Jesus is that shepherd, that woman, that father. He has come to seek and to save the lost. And every time he saves a lost person, he invites heaven and earth to join him in rejoicing for the salvation of that lost person. So let me ask, in your life, as you look at what God does in people's lives around you, are you sharing in his joy when a lost person comes back? Have you enjoyed that prodigal love of the father being benefited? Benefiting from and being blessed by his amazing and saving grace? Then are you willing to share that? Let that remembrance of what you once were, where you once were at, and now where you are now because of Jesus, let that guide you in your attitude towards those who are still lost, yet to be found. Each one of us has such amazing opportunities to invite people to gather to hear the words of Jesus, to experience his love and acceptance and grace and discover his desires not to condemn, but to save. There will come a day when Almighty God will bring judgment, rightful and just judgment, to this world. Our joyous calling in this world is to be his ambassadors, his agents of redemption, to share that message of hope and purpose so that they, the other people, might hear and then escape ultimate judgment. See, it's not my job to judge the world. That's above my pay grade. But it is my job to partner with Jesus, the Savior of the world, as he comes to seek and save that which is lost. That's our job. So let's reflect his prodigal love in this world. All right. Well, that's uh, what I need to say today uh, from Luke chapter 15. Go back and reread that and see how God uh, speaks to you. Thanks to my uh, team, uh, Lisa Welly, my executive producer, Steve Pittman, our technical guru here at the church. Thank you.